we turn to Genesis 15. Genesis chapter 15. We read the chapter and we take our text from the last portion of it, verses 17 through the end of the chapter. We hear the inspired word of God. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. And lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir. But he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took all these unto him, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece, one against another, but the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcass, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, in horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterward shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And we have here the words of our text. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. And the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaims and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. This revelation, beloved, of the covenant is of great significance to us this morning as it was to Abraham many, many years ago. It's of great significance to God's children, especially in connection with baptism, which we witnessed this morning. How do we view our baptized children? What is the truth regarding God's covenant? This is of great significance, not only to us personally, but also in the context of the Reformed church world. 
Why do we believe what we do with regard to the covenant? How do we differ in understanding the significance of God's covenant as it applies to our children and our children's children? And why is this doctrine so precious to us as Reformed believers? Now, this was not the first expression of God with regard to his covenant that we find in Scripture. God had previously given instruction concerning the covenant in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Even though we don't read of the word covenant there, God revealed himself to Adam. And he revealed himself to Adam as his covenant friend. The idea there having to do with the essence of the covenant. That God was his friend, that God loved him, and that God would care for him. Evidence that we find the covenant there present is found in Hosea 6 verse 7. We read there, But they like men have transgressed the covenant. The word men is better translated Adam. They like Adam have transgressed the covenant. God had established that covenant. Adam failed. He transgressed that covenant. We find continued development throughout Genesis. In Genesis 6 through 9, God speaks to Noah. And there God makes use of the term covenant. And God reveals to Noah the wonder by which he will preserve to himself a people despite the unfaithfulness of the world around him. But that covenant as to its heart and essence is not yet fully revealed. God then calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees. And he made clear to Abram, I will be your God, and I will be a God to your seed. And I will live with you as your friend, and you will live with me, obeying me. God promised that he would make Abram's seed great, and that Abram's seed would occupy the land. Now Abram is growing older and older. And as he increasingly looks at himself and Sarah, and Sarah's growing old, there's no indication that they're able to have a child. Will God give him seed or not? God made a promise, but now that promise increasingly is looking as though it's not going to be realized. That's the struggle now in which we find Abram. Would that seed be of his own flesh? Or could it perhaps be one of his servants that was brought up in his household? Maybe God is pleased to use that servant as the one through whom that covenant would be realized. And so that here in Genesis 15 now, we have a revelation of the covenant as to its heart and essence. Abram is now about 85 years old. He was approximately 70 when he left Ur of the Chaldees in order to come to the land that God would give him. Much has taken place since that time. And Abram still has no children. And so we read in verse 6 of Abram's response now to God. He asks God, what shall I do? God affirms the fact that I am going to give you a seed. And Abram's response, he believed. And his faith was counted for righteousness. This morning as we stand before the wonder of God's promise with regard to his covenant, as it's displayed in baptism and the sign that's given us of the washing of our children and our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ, we look at this wonder of God's covenant and the promise that God speaks, I will be a God to you and to your seed. This covenant promise is given in a vision, and we note that, noting, first of all, Abram's godly concern. Secondly, the encouraging vision here and the significance of it with regard to the covenant. And then finally, the promise. 
Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? We read in verse 2. Again, many years had transpired now since Abram was called away from his father's house and land. God had brought him into this land, and God promised that he would make of him a great nation. Abraham had a number of servants. He had a great household. He continued to go forward by faith, but God had not yet given him a child. And that becomes the burden now of Abram. He's looking for a child to come, but God is not pleased to grant him that gift. There was no sign of the promise being realized yet. And even more difficult is that each passing year made it appear as though that promise was further and further away. Sarah is getting older. Increasingly, it's evident that Sarah is not going to be able to have a child. This is the burden, the concern that weighs on Abraham. God has spoken promises, but now as Abram looks around him, it seems as those promises are not being realized. Now here's the remarkable nature of this history. Abram had just been given a glorious victory over the kings. He had rescued Lot from them. You remember that history? Five kings had gone to battle against four kings. They had captured Lot and taken him captive. Someone had escaped. And Abraham gathers his servants together. He arms them and he goes against those kings and he defeats them. He's able to get all of the things from Sodom back again. He's able to get Lot. We would expect that Abram would be on the mountaintop of faith. Having just experienced how God was with him, how God had delivered him. Instead, we find Abram fearful. We find him dismayed. God had given him a glorious promise, and he's still struggling. He's filled with concern, filled with thoughts that God is not realizing the promise that he's made. God has assured him, I will be with you, Abraham. He's displayed it again in preserving Abram and giving him the victory over the kings in order that he might rescue his nephew Lot. But Abram's consumed with this reality. What happens if I die? I might well die. And what's going to happen then to God's promise? Is Eliezer going to receive the inheritance? Should I see to it that Eliezer is adopted as my adopted son so that he will have a more prominent place within my household? These are the questions that are swirling in Abram's mind as revealed in verse 2. Lord God, what wilt thou give me seeing I go childless and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? Behold, to me thou hast given no seed and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. God comforts Abram. And God comes to Abram with this comfort. Not your servant, but a son will be the heir. And not only will God give him a son, God will make of his offspring a multitude not capable of being counted. And so God takes Abram outdoors and he directs his vision to the sky during the night. And he says, Abram, look at all those stars. That's what I am going to do to your family. Your offspring is going to be like the stars in multitude. Now what a wonderful comfort and what a wonderful encouragement. Every time Abram got discouraged, every time he began to think, is God 
faithful? Is his covenant going to be realized? All he had to do was wait till dark, step outside of his tent and look up and be reminded, this is what God is going to do for me. God is going to make my offspring to be like the stars in the heaven in multitude. There are times we use the slogan, God's got this. That's what God is telling Abraham here. God is saying, Abraham, I've made a promise and I'm going to keep it. I will realize it. Abraham couldn't fathom how that could be. And God says, you just step outside and look up. I am going to realize this. And beloved, how often we need that. God gives us promises. We look around us. We struggle to understand how can those promises be realized. Will those promises ever come to pass? And God gives us then the grace to trust in Him and to trust in His Word. And He gives us signs that point to the wonder of His faithfulness. Now, God did not encourage Abraham with conditions that he would have to fulfill in order to maintain and keep that covenant. That's crucially important here. Imagine how discouraging that would have been to Abraham if God said, Abraham, I'm faithful, but you need to do this and that and the other thing. Leaving the impression that the reason why the covenant's not being realized is something to do with Abraham and something to do with the failure of Abraham to maintain something that God had determined. There's nothing in this text about conditions, nothing in this text about threats or mutual contracts, nothing in this text about any kind of agreement between God and men. Unequal parties would have to somehow come to some kind of an agreement in order that this beautiful promise could be realized. Some teach that the covenant involves all these kind of conditions that need to be fulfilled. That's not our text. Our text is God coming to Abraham and saying, Abraham, I will do it. And I will bring it to pass. Now the covenant contains beautiful promises. Promises that are set forth in this chapter as well as that abound in the scriptures. These promises do not themselves constitute the covenant. But these promises do direct us to the essence of the covenant. The covenant, we might say too, is not a means to an end. It's important that we know what the covenant is not here on the basis of this passage. It's not based on conditions. It's not a means so that you do this and then you can get this. Later, God would make that very clear when God would say, I will establish my covenant with you in Genesis 17, 7 as an everlasting covenant. Something that's everlasting never ends. So that it's not just a means to something better. It is that which continues to all eternity. God's bond of friendship God's bond of love would be that by which God would keep and preserve his own to all eternity. And that bond, that union between God and his people would constitute the essence of God's covenant. So if the covenant is not that which just serves our life while we're on earth and then when we die, it has nothing more to do with us, God's covenant is that relationship that God establishes. I will be your God. You're going to be my children. And God now preserves and keeps us in it to all eternity. 
Now, that doesn't mean that now we enjoy the fullness of that covenant. We realize that the fullness of it isn't going to be revealed until we get to glory. God would bring Abram into an increasingly deeper experience of that love and that friendship. And God does that with us as well. So that God establishes his covenant with us. But then there's growth, there's development as we live as friends, servants of Jehovah God. And God through time draws us closer. He unites us to himself by faith. And then he draws us to himself so that increasingly we live in the wonder and the knowledge of the love that he has for us. Increasingly we put off that old and we put on the new and we live in friendship and fellowship with himself. God would distinguish Abram to himself. Abram did not distinguish himself to God. It's important that we understand that. Abraham didn't do anything to make himself worthy. He wasn't fulfilling certain conditions and doing things so that God said, now look at that Abram. He stands out among all the people in the world. Therefore, I'm going to pick him. No, God chose Abraham. And God made it so that Abram was distinguished because of God's work within him. Abraham didn't distinguish himself to God. God distinguished Abraham unto himself. Abraham didn't earn fellowship or communion with God. No, God distinguished him and God said, I will also cause your seed to stand out among all the peoples of the world. Salvation is all of God. And that's the emphasis again here in Genesis 15. God's been making that clear since the beginning of history. Salvation is all of God. And now God comes to Abram, who's filled with despair, filled with concern. How is that salvation going to be realized? And God says, Abram, I've got this. Trust in me. I will bring it to pass. This is my covenant. And I will establish, I will maintain, and I will bring it to pass. Abram asks in verse 8, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And so God does more than just speak to Abram. God gives Abraham here a remarkable vision. And we want to look at that vision. And it came to pass, we read in verse 17, that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace, a burning lamp passed between those pieces. Here was Abram, a sinner who failed, who could not maintain faithfulness to God perfectly. And God now comes to Abram and says, Abram, I am faithful. And he reveals to him now more fully the nature and the essence of this relationship, this covenant. God says, I'm a holy God. And that holiness now is displayed in this vision. We read of fire in verse 17. The fire of the furnace and the fire of the lamp. And that depicts the presence of a holy God. Fire is always symbolic, as we've noted, of two things in the Bible, of the means by which God purifies his church, his children, but also the means by which God punishes and destroys the wicked, the consuming fire of God's wrath. Both flow out of God's holiness. As a holy God, 
God comes to his children and commands them, Be ye holy as I am holy. And God showed himself by fire as the wise, the holy God, who is as a flaming furnace, as a burning lamp. And that furnace destroys the wicked and it purifies his people. Now that holiness of God is so important that it must be preached, it must be taught with regard to every area then of our lives as God's children. God reveals himself as holy, as righteous. And that holiness is that which we seek to reflect. Be ye holy as I am holy is the command that comes to God. Now that would be impossible apart from God's spirit within us. But God's spirit works in us in order to give us to know not only are we holy in Christ through the wonder of his grace, but now he's at work within us, sanctifying us, working in us that sensitivity to sin and that desire to do what's right. So that that holiness is evident in our marriages. It's evident in our families. It's evident with the recreation that we enjoy. It's evident in our work and the things that we set before our eyes, the things which we pursue. Jehovah God makes us his children by grace and he calls us to holiness as he is holy. Now God reveals himself here as a personal God with the words of verse 1. Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Don't be afraid. Now what a beautiful refrain. And again, we find this refrain throughout the scriptures. Depicting the fact that we as God's people are inclined to be afraid. We're inclined to become fearful. We look around us again and we begin to question, where is God? If God is in control, why is he letting this happen in my life? If God is the one who promises and pledges his covenant faithfulness to his church, why would he allow these things to happen to his church? Fear not, God says. I am your God. I am your exceeding reward. Now God doesn't say, I will be your shield, I will be your reward, Abram, if you do this and if you accomplish this. No, God says, I am. And that's the beautiful promise to which we cling. God comes to us and God says, I am. And because I am your shield and your exceeding great reward, you will delight in me. You will live unto me. And you will experience also my blessing in your generations. God gives Abram and he gives us what we need. He gives himself. Now that's the marvelous wonder. God doesn't just give us things. God says, I am. I give you myself. I give you my own son, Jesus Christ, who will lay down his life in your place in order that you might be mine and you might live unto me to all eternity. Now God does all of this, we say, unilaterally. What does that mean? That means that the covenant as it's set forth here in Genesis 15, is one-sided. It's not something that we play a part and God is party and we have two parties and therefore the two parties then work out some kind of a mutual agreement. It's not a contract. It's not a deal that's struck between two. The idea of a unilateral covenant is important for us to grasp. 
In opposition to that idea, there's the teaching that the covenant is bilateral. The covenant is two-sided. That there are two parties and that the covenant then is dependent on us. And it's important for us to note, if the covenant was dependent on Abraham, Abraham was doomed. Abraham couldn't make Sarah have a child. Abraham was powerless in that regard. God alone could work the wonder of conception, as God then did by a wonder and a miracle. Now, the Bible often talks about the covenant as containing two parties. And we find that as we study the Bible. Marriage, for instance, is set forth as a covenant between a man and a woman who are equals spiritually, who make promises one to another. We read of Abram swearing an oath with Abimelech, according to Genesis 21. It was a mutual covenant, and it contained promises, and it contained pledges, threats, so that they came to an agreement saying, I'll do this, you do this, and then we'll be able to live peacefully together. So it is with Jacob and Laban. You children remember how Jacob came to work for Laban, and Laban said, well, if you work for me for seven years, then I'll give you one of my daughters. And so they made a deal. They cut a covenant, and they had agreements there. Jacob had to do something, Laban would do something. And so that together then, they made a vow and a promise. God instructed Israel, do not make a covenant with the surrounding nations. Now remember, they messed up, they disobeyed God, and they did it with the Gibeonites. And so that now, in Joshua 9, we read then of a covenant between the Gibeonites, speaking promises, speaking threats, and working out then a mutual deal between the two. These examples lead some to suppose then that God is doing the same thing here with Abraham. We need to see that this text teaches something very different. This does not teach a bilateral covenant as though God and Abram are mutual partners who are working out a deal. This text teaches something very different. God does not come to Abram and say, I'll do this if you do this. God simply says, I'll do this. And that's the marvelous character of this vision. There's no ground for anything two-sided here. It's all one-sided. And this text makes a powerful case for the unilateral covenant. And on the basis of this passage and many others, we conclude God's covenant is one-sided. God says, I will be your God. I will make you my people. And then God does it. And that becomes the encouragement. That becomes the comfort of God's children. God comes to us as covenant parents and God says, I will be a God to you and to your seed. And God brings it to pass. And we lay hold on that covenant promise by faith. God has spoken. Now bring it to pass. I'm weak. I'm a sinner. This covenant cannot depend upon me. If it would, it would be doomed. God alone maintains the covenant. God establishes that covenant. And God is the one that preserves and brings it to its completion. God says, Abram, Leave Ur of the Chaldees. And God doesn't even give Abram a reason. You remember that history. God says, Abram, leave. And Abram says, why? Why would he have to leave? And God just simply says, I will make of you a great nation. It's all God's doing. God is going to accomplish something. Abram didn't make himself worthy. 
And you children know that well. Again and again, Abram failed. Remember when he went down to Egypt and he lied. He said that Sarah was his sister instead of his wife. Abraham didn't display faithful obedience to God. He didn't trust in God. Here we find Abram again, fearful and discouraged. Abram didn't need to fulfill any conditions in order to make himself worthy of God establishing covenant and making of him a great nation. If that was the case, the covenant failed. And there would be no realizing that covenant in Abraham. But God says, Abraham, I will be your God. And I will establish my covenant with you. And I will bring it to pass. Even though Abraham can't see how that would be possible. He doesn't have a child. How can God make his seed as the stars of the sky? God says, Abram, go cut up the animals. So he takes a half for a she-goat, a ram, a young pigeon, and a turtle dove. He cuts up the larger animals into pieces, and he separates the pieces. We read that he didn't cut up the birds. He left them whole. Now, Abram would have been familiar with that practice. That was how they would cut a covenant back in that day. They would cut up the animals, and then the two individuals who were making a deal would walk through those cut up animals, testifying by that, I will be like these chopped up animals if I fail to maintain my part of the covenant. In other words, let me be dead if I fail. That was the seriousness of this. And Abram would be familiar with this ritual as it was a well-known ritual among the Chaldeans. But what happens here in this passage? Abram cuts up the carcasses and then we read in verse 12 and 13, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and lo and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And then we have in verse 17, and it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp passed between those pieces. And the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. What happens here is God puts Abram in a deep sleep and only God passes through the pieces. They both don't do it. That's the way ordinarily a covenant would be cut. Both of them would pass through. But God says, no, my covenant is different. My covenant is a one-sided covenant. This is a covenant that's not dependent on you, Abraham. This is a covenant that I will establish, I will maintain it, and I will bring it to pass. And this is evidence of it. I will do it. I will pass through. Now, blood had to be shed for the sake of that covenant life between God and his people. And that's the only possibility of this covenant being established and maintained, the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's to which the water of baptism points us. Blood had to be shed in order for there to be covenant life between God and his people. The covenant of grace was dependent upon one, the lamb, sacrificing himself in order that God's people might be reconciled to God. And now God gives Abram a picture of that. Blood had to be shed. The covenant, God's covenant, would be established on the basis of the blood of the lamb alone, Jesus Christ. And the faithfulness of God then would be seen in giving a Savior through whom his people would be delivered. And God would do that in a manner that would reflect salvation is all of God. 
How would that Savior come? Did he come by the will of man? No. He came according to the will of God in a marvelous way, born of a virgin. Jehovah God testifying, I will establish my covenant in Jesus Christ alone. And I will give my own son who will pass through death in order that that covenant might be established and that covenant might be sure. That covenant is not dependent on you, Abraham, God is saying. It's not dependent upon money. It's not dependent upon works or conditions of any kind. That covenant is dependent on the blood of Jesus Christ alone, the blood of the Lamb. This perfect sacrifice was the way in which God cut his covenant. That's the literal word that's used in the Old Testament, God cutting a covenant. Reminded the saints were continually when they would establish earthly covenants then of the shedding of blood and the importance of the shedding of blood for the sake of the covenant. And so God gives then Abram a bloody sign, circumcision. Today, Jesus, having shed his blood, the sign is no longer bloody. He gives us baptism as the sign of the washing away of our sins, the establishing of that covenant through Jesus Christ. How is it that we and our children are brought into covenant with Jehovah God? Through the blood of the Lamb alone. It's nothing on us. There's no condition that we had to fulfill in order to make ourselves worthy. We would be doomed if that were the case. But Jehovah God, by a wonder of His grace, takes us, having chosen us from all eternity, and redeems us through the blood of the Lamb and brings us into the knowledge of His love and His favor that is everlasting. How would Abraham know that his seed is going to inherit the land? God says, I'm going to do it. How will Abraham know that Sarah is going to have a child? God says, I'm going to do it, Abraham. How do we know that our seed will inherit the promised land of Canaan? God comes to us as parents and God says, I will do it. The covenant does not depend on you. It doesn't depend on me. It depends on Jehovah God alone. God passed through the pieces and God pledged, I will establish my covenant. And I will establish that covenant between me and thee as an everlasting covenant and I will maintain it, and I will preserve it. And he preserves that covenant in the way of holiness and righteousness, working in our hearts by his Spirit, that holiness, that righteousness, that thankfulness that moves us to live unto him. We can understand then when the word condition is used in connection with a covenant that Reformed people recoil It cannot be. As soon as you attach condition to the covenant, you've destroyed the beauty and the wonder of the covenant as a gracious covenant, as a covenant that is established and maintained by Jehovah God alone. As soon as conditions are attached, then salvation becomes conditional. It becomes dependent on man. Man's works are now injected into the wonder of salvation. And then any confidence, any peace is destroyed. How can I be assured that I will be kept and preserved in that relationship with God? I can't because I'm a sinner and I'm going to fail. But thanks be to God for the wonder of His grace by which He comes to Abraham and to us and establishes a covenant that is a unilateral, 
one-sided covenant. Now, there are those who try to inject in this history the significance of Abram shooing away the birds as if that was the condition that he was fulfilling on behalf of the covenant. Now, we need to be really careful not to read too much into that. We ask this question, though, in response, and that's often what the critics would say. Does this mean, then, that there's nothing for man to do? Does this mean that as Christians, there's nothing that we need to do? That's the fear. That's the concern that's raised in response to those who say, but you're saying the covenant is all of grace? You're saying the covenant is a unilateral covenant? Does that mean, then, that we just do nothing? Now, of course, God gives to his children a part in God's covenant. And note from the baptism form, that distinction. We're not party in the covenant, but we have a part. We have a calling. We have an obligation. Abraham had a calling, an obligation. He was to love God. He was to trust in God. He was to press on in the confidence of God's faithfulness. If we are to make significance to the fact that Abraham here had to scare away the birds... The application perhaps would be along this line. As those whom God takes into his covenant, God admonishes and God strengthens us to defend that covenant. As the covenant comes under attack, and as individuals and as the devil tries to undermine the beauty and the reality of that covenant, we're defending it. And we're busy standing up for God and for his glory. Over against all that's unholy, all that defiles God, all that's of the devil all false teaching. We say, no, don't render the blood of the covenant as an unholy thing. Don't render the fact that Jesus shed his blood for the covenant and now that blood is not sufficient to save alone. We oppose everything that stands between us and God. But we don't do so as though the covenant is dependent on us. We would be doomed again then. But we do this because God has taken us into covenant. And God has given us to know a love for him as our father. And we love our father. And we defend his name. We defend his glory. We defend his word. Because we love him and we delight in him. And we desire to give him all praise and all honor. Going forth not in our strength, but in his strength. Now what about the fact that the Bible talks about covenant breakers? With shame, we admit, we break God's covenant. We are not faithful as we ought. We fail to maintain that love for God, that delight in God as we are. There are times we demonstrate a carelessness with regard to God's will and God's commandments. We realize too that there is among the world those that despise and break God's covenant. So that covenant breakers are applicable to both God's people and the wicked. They don't destroy God's covenant by their actions, nor do we. That's impossible. So that covenant breakers doesn't imply that because of these actions, God's covenant fails. But they say no to God's covenant. They despise God's law. They despise God. They trample underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ as if it has no power, as if it's of no account. They mock God's grace and God's people. And they do that without ever being a part of the covenant. That sometimes is the confusion of some. How can you break God's covenant if you're not part of God's covenant? We can break the laws of Canada without being part of Canada. We drive up there. 
and we violate their laws and we break then the laws of a country of which we don't have citizenship. And so it is with regard to the wicked. They break God's laws even though they don't have citizenship in God's kingdom. They're still covenant breakers. But God is faithful and God is gracious. God sent his own son to die for those covenant breakers whom from eternity he had ordained as his elect. And through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are able to know the peace and the comfort of life everlasting. That all the responsibility of our salvation, all the responsibility of the salvation of our children was taken upon Jesus Christ. And he shed his blood on our behalf in order to accomplish that wonder. This is not our work. This is God's work. And the calling, the duty that we have as we stand before the living God is to love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to walk before Him with thankfulness. He's taken us. He's brought us into His covenant life. I will be your God. And He's made us His children by a wonder of adoption. And now we live before His face with thankfulness and with praise. The fact that the covenant is one-sided, unilateral, does not make God's children lazy. It doesn't mean that God's children then do nothing and leave it all then to God, so to speak. We know salvation is all of God. But this wonder stirs us up. It lights the fire of God's holiness within us so that we desire to live unto Him. We desire to praise Him. Out of thankfulness, we teach our children We lead a life of holiness and godliness. We turn from sin and repent by the wonder of His grace. And we live honoring Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior. Busy all our days in His service and pursuing His glory. We live, beloved, in the comfort of the wonder of God's covenant and God's faithfulness. And that brings us back to that beautiful promise that God gives. Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. First of all, the idea, I am thy shield. What is a shield necessary for? One doesn't need a shield during times of peace. A shield is needed during time of battle to protect oneself from the enemy. The enemy is coming against us. How will we defend ourselves? God says, don't you worry. I'm your shield. Now what a beautiful encouragement to Abram. Abram faced all kinds of dangers. He faced all kinds of threats and evils. And God comes to Abram and says, Abram, don't worry. I'm your shield. I'm protecting you. I'm the one who will see to it that you're not going to die. You're going to live in order to see a son born. I'm going to lead you safely through all your dangers, all your struggles, to your heavenly home, to Canaan. The shield is not forever. The shield is only necessary as long as there's enemies. But the reward, that's forever. And that's the striking thing. Exceeding great reward. Jehovah himself is Abram's shield and his reward. The reward notice here then isn't just the land. There are some that say, well, the the promise to Abraham just had to do with Cain and the land. No, it's more than that. God says, I am 
The reward is that Jehovah gives himself to Abram. And he says, I am. You will live with me in communion and fellowship. I will bestow upon you everything that's in my storehouse. Adopting you into my family. Making you now one who is the recipient of this glorious inheritance. God gives to Abram everything that's in his storehouse of spiritual blessings. And God says, Abram, no evil power can stand against you. I am going to preserve and keep you. I have your life. I have your forgiveness. I have your peace, your communion. And I will give you heavenly blessings that are boundless. There's no place for fear, Abram. Now God demonstrates in that same context the horrible darkness that's going to come upon Abram's family and his offspring. That darkness is a picture of Egypt, the affliction of God's people in Egypt. And God makes reference to that here in verse 13 and following, that they're going to be brought into darkness. They're going to be brought into that land that's not theirs. They're going to suffer. They'll be afflicted for 400 years. But I am Jehovah. I have established this covenant and I will bring it to pass, God says. Your seed will not be destroyed. I will preserve them. And Jehovah will be as that flame of fire that leads his people not only into Egypt but out of Egypt by that pillar. And he will do so marvelously and wonderfully destroying the Egyptians with his arm of power. Beloved, there are times in our lives the darkness descends and we too become fearful. The devil seems to have the upper hand. We look around us and there's disappointments, there's struggles in our own lives with sin, there's struggles with our children, there's challenges with grandchildren. It doesn't look as though the promise of God is going to be able to be realized in our generations. There are times we even would despair of God's promise as we look around us. We see what our children are going to face. We see the horrors our grandchildren are going to be up against. And we can't even imagine what great-grandchildren are going to face. How will they ever be able to stand over against the enemy, the devil, and the ways in which he's having his way in the world around us? The darkness that's descending and the blatant sin that's evidence. God says, I passed through the pieces. I will fulfill my covenant I established that covenant on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ and that blood was not shed in vain I am faithful you have a savior who accomplished it and who will preserve and keep you and your little ones who works in your heart and who will work in the heart of your children and your children's children in order to preserve them in the enjoyment of that covenant in holiness and sanctification and faithfulness to their God. How will we as sinful parents go forward training these children? How will we raise them in the fear of God? We go forward, beloved, on the basis of this glorious promise. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Our protector, the protector of our children and grandchildren is Jehovah God, the almighty God of heaven and earth. And he not only is their shield, he's preparing them and us for an exceeding great reward. A reward that we can't even begin to fathom. I pass through the pieces, God said. I am faithful. 
and we put our trust in Him. And we walk in thankfulness to Him. And we lay hold on the reality of which baptism is a picture. The blood of the Savior who is shed in my place in order that I might live. And God says, unto this seed I will give the land. Abraham's seed would be given the earthly Canaan. But even then God is speaking of something far greater. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, he gives to Abraham's spiritual seed the heavenly Canaan. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, strengthen and preserve us. In the midst of the fears, the doubts, the concerns of life, may we lay hold by faith on the wonder of thy promise, the wonder of thy covenant as an everlasting covenant established by thee, preserved by thee, and maintained by thee on the basis of the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.